Greetings, happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show, and thank you for all you do to help promote the show. And uh, if you have not yet subscribed, please do that as quickly as possible. And uh, if you can encourage others who like the show to subscribe, well, please do that as well. That is good for us and good for you. So um, we speak about how the world really works, right? And one of the most compelling ways to discredit a doctrine is to show that it has no relationship with reality. It's just not how the world really works. And uh, one of those, for instance, is the doctrine of equality. Now, it is fairly well known that in the early 17th century, when the pilgrims arrived in New England, uh, the first couple of years, they nearly starved. People did die. Uh, and one of the things is that they had adopted the principle of equality. What they did is that they had one big community farm, and the produce of the farm was shared equally. Well, the farm performed so poorly that by the time it was divided up among all the pilgrim families, there was literally not enough to sustain life. And so the next year, they were literally saved by a decision to allocate to each man a section of the, uh, the, the, the land. And so each man had his own homestead, his own area. And out of that, uh, all of a sudden, the productivity of the land multiplied by many times. So, you know, it's very simple. We understand that in the real world, People care more about their own possessions and their own property than they do about anybody else's. And instead of bewailing that, and instead of utopian thinking that says, well, let's work and change people on this, uh, the first thing to do is to change circumstances and make them adopt to reality. Um, another example of this, uh, you know, keeps on cropping up. Uh, you know perfectly well that if you uh, are instructing your 17-year-old daughter who's going out into the world for the first time and she's going to get her first job and she's going to be uh, thinking of, of moving into her own place, which she'll share with a few other girls, there are certain things that you as a parent would want to tell her one of the things you might say to her is that um, do not, under any circumstances, go to isolated places with a guy. If a guy invites you back to his apartment or his house, don't do it. If a guy invites you to his hotel room, you don't go. And 
people hearing you might say, why are you doing that? You're blaming the woman. Uh, it's nothing to do with her. The man has to behave properly. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. But the reality is that until some dreamed-of utopian time arrives, uh, men, there are going to be caddish men. They're going to be scoundrels. They're going to be rogues. They're going to be bad men. They just are. And so your primary concern is protecting your daughter. She's 17 years old. She's coming out into the world for the first time. Uh, there are things you have to tell her to protect herself. Uh, you might even tell her how to dress. You might say, don't, don't dress. You know, you're going to work. Don't dress provocatively. It'll, it'll make men concentrate on your body and not on your soul. Uh, you don't want to do that at the stage of your life or at any stage. And people hearing you would say, she should be able to dress any way she likes. Men have to stop being pigs. Yeah, right. But um, we're talking about reality, and uh, that is how the world really works. So uh, equality is like that. It would be nice if everybody in among the pilgrims would have worked just as hard on the community farm as they did on their own farms, but that's not how reality works. And so we understand that that's uh, one critique we could level at the idea of socialism, um, equality is a doctrine that doesn't work. Freedom does work. Trouble is that freedom results in inequality and an attempt to impose equality to impose equality uh, wipes out any possibility of freedom. So uh, you've got to choose. Do you want freedom or do you want equality? If you choose equality, it conflicts with reality. And uh, if you choose freedom, well, then you have to be mature enough to understand that equality is not part of the deal. How's about the doctrine of feminism? Well, one only has to ask, does it conform to reality or does it conflict with reality? I'm not altogether sure of what the doctrine of feminism is. I'm not sure anybody does because it's feminism is a social construct, to use one of the popular phrases of the left. Uh, it's not like, um, you know, what is the doctrine of gravity? Well, it's not a doctrine. It's just a reality. Uh, gravity, you know, is, is a force that uh, causes two masses to attract themselves to one another in proportion to the size of their masses and in inverse proportion to the square of the distance between them. Uh, it's not a matter of opinion. <laughs> Gravity just is. Feminism is not like that. Feminism is a matter of opinion. And um, there are any number of social and cultural and political components and theories and moral philosophies having to do with gender and rights and uh, 
these, these, you know, and there are some women who are feminists in one way, but not another. There are some men who are feminists in one way and not another. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very difficult to know exactly what it is. But um, basically, it's uh, a movement that wants to see an end to sexism. Well, okay, and now I'm, I'm quoting from one of the authorities. So I would never say an end to sexism because sexism isn't defined in any way whatsoever. Now we have to say, what's, what is sexism? And... Um, uh, you know, and uh, okay, well, let's try and do it without using the word set. Feminism strive for, they, they want to see social justice for those who have been oppressed by the patriarchy. Oh, now we've got to figure out what the patriarchy means. And um, and so on and so forth. It becomes extremely difficult. But uh, if sexism lies at the heart of it, which is essentially, I mean, I think sexism means noticing a difference between men and women, uh, this now becomes very difficult because um, all of the all hope for the future of mankind depends obviously on noticing a difference on men noticing that women are different and women noticing that men are different. And without that, it's extremely unlikely that we shall see uh, the uh, the human race continue again nonsensical but um, the, the how well okay well they should have exactly the same amount of money well see here you run into a problem because let's uh, say for the moment that marriage is one of the most important aspects of male female relationships well Actually, marriage works best when there is not financial parity. That's right. So much so that uh, the stay-at-home dad, the idea of the husband staying home while the wife is out working, um, is one of the highest and most reliable indicators of divorce. It doesn't work. And uh, it so happens that the reverse is true, that the greater and by the way, all of this is presuming that the husband is a gentleman, that the husband is a man, the husband is a nobleman, that the husband is not a tyrant or a scoundrel. Or everything I'm saying is on the presumption that the man is a man. And uh, and I know that there are fewer and fewer of those around, and, and I know that uh, wonderful women sometimes feel... Uh, almost hopeless about the diminishing number of real men to be found. But uh, at any rate, if, uh, if feminism is about men and women having exactly... You see, you see the problem we come into, because in, in reality, uh, women are happiest when they are with a man who makes more money than they do. And a man is happiest when he is bringing in the bulk of the money and that uh, and that his wife's um, comfort and survival and ability does depend on him for men that 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 is a, a wonderful thing men like that 
a smart thing for a, a guy who's getting married to a, g- a girl who, or a woman who's working. Uh, one of the smartest things you could advise your male friends, young friends getting married, one of the smartest things they could say to the woman to whom they're getting married is, listen, uh, we're not going to buy a house or get an apartment that is dependent on both of our incomes. I'd like us to be able to live on my income alone, and your income should go into a savings account for the future, whatever it's going to be, but not that we are going to get ourselves into a spending situation which absolutely depends on us being a two-income family. That's not a great idea. So it's a smart thing. And and the majority of women, and when I say the majority of women, women who have not been fatally damaged by the culture, the majority of normal, healthy women will respond very positively to that. They would love to be in a marriage where the financial security of the family does not depend on them working. Most women would love that. So there, right from the start, uh, there is a, a conflict between reality and feminism because reality is that most women want to, I'm just going to say women want to get married, and men, if they are mature and wise and are real men, also know that they want to get married for a number of reasons. And we cover this very extensively in our new book, The Holistic You, which is that so much that brings joy and achievement into a man's life happens because of his wife. Um, Two straightforward examples. A man has a relationship with his son because of his wife. That's, it, that is pretty basic and pretty real. All right? Every man would like to have a son. And, and hey, you know, any, any male, any person of the male persuasion who says, well, I don't really care about having a son, uh, you are probably in all likelihood a fairly damaged male. That's a very different situation from there are there are many couples there are men who are incapable for various medical reasons or whatever they're not capable of of having children i get it that's a tragedy and it's very hard and uh, and and people deal with that in in better or worse ways but ordinarily in the natural order of things uh, men want sons now you might say well all you need is a compliant consenting woman and you can have a son right that's all compliance and consent, nine months later, you've got a 50% probability of having a son. All right. But that's a mistake. Nine months later, you have a 50% probability of a male fetus or of a male child. But that's a very different thing from a son, isn't it? A son is a unique relationship. A relationship between a man and his son, it's very unique. And it is extremely difficult, verging on the improbable, for a man to have a good relationship with a son if he doesn't have a good wife. Because that relationship between a man and his son comes about because his wife makes it happen. 
Very hard for it to happen otherwise. Not impossible, very, very hard. Now, there's several reasons for that. One of them is that the way the good Lord created us, there is a natural and comfortable relationship between a man, a boy and his mom, and a girl and her dad. That's the way we are. And so it's a reason, you know, you'll you'll find that uh, many men have a tattoo uh, with a heart and the word mom, right? Men love their mothers, but a relationship with a father it's it can be awkward and and if i mean there's no man who hasn't felt it and that's why sigmund freud came up with the most unbelievable nonsense complete and utter bilge water uh theories about the relationship between a, a boy and his mother and a boy and his father complete and utter rubbish but the reason he was driven in that direction to try and find something to explain is because every man has experienced a certain basic awkwardness with his dad at a certain point now when he gets older it it comes right usually but the relationship depends to such a great extent on the role of his mom she can really build the connection between a boy and his father says that the man ends up with a real relationship with his son and conversely girls have a natural easy relationship with their dads he is after all the first man in their life and they they look to him for security and they look to him for support and sustenance and strength and the wherewithals of life and uh, and and this is why i mean you know everybody knows it's it's an old truism that um, you know girls look for guys girls who grew up with great fathers look for guys like fathers like their fathers and uh, sometimes fathers have to help with that because by the time a girl is 18 or 19 or 22 and she's looking for a husband somebody to spend the rest of her life together with in partnership at that point her dad is already a very accomplished and developed man and there is absolutely no way a 25 year old guy can be that and so it takes a lot of wise guidance on the part of a father to explain to his daughter and help walk her through this and to say look here's uh, this guy uh, is no good for you for the following reasons and this guy this guy could be good if you like him I have no problems because he's got good character and he's got great potential and he's on the right track and he's using his time wisely. But she said, well, he's not this and he's not that. Yeah, and he won't be for a number of years because it takes a while. But a wise father has the role of spotting the potential in his daughter's future mate. So all of that happens because of the connection between a father and his daughter and a daughter and her dad. It's so important that we know, and and this was very disturbing 
when the psychologists and the doctors began to first research this. But there's a lot of literature on this, and that is that girls who grow up without fathers in the home uh, reach puberty significantly earlier than girls who grow up in intact, wholesome families. What do you think of that? Isn't that wild? And by the way, if there is, if the mother has a boyfriend uh, in the house, that makes it even more. But this is a very striking thing. And it's, it's troublesome to the world of science because it's hard for them to find a materialistic or a scientific explanation for why it is that girls who grow up without a father in the house hit puberty significantly earlier than other girls. And the answer, obviously, is it's a spiritual issue. It's not a physical issue. And without a relationship with her father, she is already seeking a man in her life. That's exactly what women do. They seek out men. And, uh, and this young girl, she might be very young, but her need for a man in her life is satisfied by her father. When there's no father around, she still has the need for a man in, the li in her life, and her spiritual need brings along a physical manifestation, which is the arrival of puberty, because she, she now has to find a man who's, there is no father, so she's got to find another man. How does she do that? By being a woman. So she becomes a woman as early as she possibly can. Um, right? This, none of this is healthy stuff, but um, all part of the way the good Lord created us. And, uh, and that's the way it works. The problem is that there are people who either don't know how the world really works, or they are determined to combat this and to somehow force the world into their vision of what they think the world actually ought to look like. Yeah, every woman needs a man, and every man needs a woman. What does a man need a woman for? You might say, well, he's got uh, physical needs. No, that's, that's obvious, but let's go much deeper than that. A man needs a woman, for one thing, in order to uh, be socially connected with his community. And, um, and that's a reality. You know, many men listening to me right now might be tempted to say to themselves, that's not true, I don't need a woman, I've, I've got friends, I'm connected to my community. Um, you may think you are, but the truth is you don't have any idea of what connection to, to your community will look like uh, when you do have a woman. And uh, men without a woman feel that very poignantly. Your connection with the community comes about because of the wonderful thing called a woman. Women connect more comfortably and naturally than men. And so all of a sudden, you're married and you find that uh, all of a sudden there are new people in your life. I can't tell you when I explain this at a speech or at a seminar or at an event, I can't tell you how many men come up to me to validate what I've just said and say, yeah, 
uh, some of my most successful business relationships have come about with men who are the husbands of women my wife became friendly with, and then we became friendly with as couples, and we started off going out for dinner, whatever it was, and then little by little, yeah, that's right, your social circle expands exponentially if you have a good woman in your life. So that's one thing. Now, that spreads from that very quickly to finance, not just friendships, but finance in the way I just described. So, yes, it's it's not an accident. Um, you know, IBM in the old days, up, up until the 60s, uh, IBM for senior executive positions, and IBM was not in any way unique in this. It was very common among large corporations. Uh, they would interview the wife as well as interview the husband. After there were several interviews with a potential candidate for a senior executive position, uh, they would meet the wife as well because they understood how absolutely crucially important a good wife is in the role of a husband. In other words, the if you're not allowed to ask today, are you? But if you're hiring a man in your company, if you can hire a man who's in a great marriage, you get much more bang for the buck. That man delivers far more to your organization than a single man possibly can. Now, I know what many people are going to well, a single man can be married to his job. But he goes, that may be true, but I'm speaking about senior executive positions where the wholeness of the man counts how good his relationships are with other people. Because don't forget, uh, when you are bringing aboard a senior person into your organization, it's not just technical skills you want, but it's his connections, it's his experience, it's how he relates to other people, both in the organization and outside the organization. And all of these things are far more successful in a man who is married than in a man who is single. So uh, that's what a uh, that, that that's just a few of the things for which a man needs a woman. But why does a woman need a man? Right? After all, if you are a good feminist, then you've already heard the expression that you know men, women need men like fish need bicycles. Um, you, you, you already know women do not need a man for anything anymore today. Okay, so let me just explain something here that, uh, that your feminist friends should really take to heart. They should really understand this. And that is you can't, you, you really need to think about how unusual it is for people living in this brief historic moment, living in a modern civilized democracy. Think about that. A woman doesn't need a man. Yeah, because if she is in trouble, she can dial 911 and the police will come and save her and rescue her. Or better yet, she's living in a society where the likelihood of her ever needing to deal 911 is close to zero. As I'm sure you know, up until the 1960s, women could walk safely in the day or the night in any park, in any city in the United States of America. 
it was very rare, very unusual for anything to go wrong. But there's been a change in the last 60 years, a huge change, a huge change. And, uh, and now, I, that's why I said dial 911, but I said it tongue-in-cheek because you all know as well as I do the likelihood of a woman being saved from an assault by dialing 911. The odds are very low of anybody coming in anywhere near quick enough time to save her. Uh, but at least, you know, think about how things seemed in the 1950s, where for the most part, women were pretty much safe. But don't forget, most women were married back in the 50s. And so it's not just a case of uh, taking out the trash and fixing a leaking faucet and um, taking care of maintenance and gassing up of the car. It's understanding that the luxury of a woman making the foolish statement and even more foolishly believing the foolish statement that women don't need men anymore, that can only be said by a very comfortable, a very affluent woman living in an affluent, liberal, democratic, civilized society. But for the overwhelming majority of human history, it's not been that way. And there's very little likelihood of it not going back to that you you got to think if you if you take all the human beings who've lived in the last 2000 years all the human beings who've lived on the planet in the last 2000 years how what percentage of them do you think lived out their lives in peace without experiencing any life-changing violence think about that it's been estimated that only about 2% of human beings of all the humans who've lived in the last 2,000 years, only less than 2% actually did not experience life-changing violence in their lives. Think about this. I mean, what proportion of Americans live their lives today without experiencing violence? Much more than 2%, right? But I think you'll agree that the number has been dropping dramatically since 1960. At the time of Jesus, the, the Roman Empire was engaged in a long, dreadful civil war, and it eventually ended up with the dissolution of the Roman Empire. That civil war period, three million people were killed. Now, back then, the world, what was the world population at the time of Jesus? Uh, 200 to 300 million, let's say 300 million, might have been a bit less. Um, so 3 million killed by Roman civil wars would be the equivalent of a war today that would snuff out the lives of 70 million people. How many people altogether total died in World War II? Nobody knows the exact figure, obviously. Nobody has a clue of what the exact figure is, but estimates are between 25 to 50 million people, right? probably closer to 50. So even World War II didn't wipe out 
as many people proportional to the population as the Roman Civil War wiped out 2,000 years ago. Think about that. By the way, during exactly the same period, the Romans were engaged in wars with the Jews of Judea in Israel, and um, they killed about 3 million Jews in addition there, which was a huge majority of almost all the, of all the Jews in the world, right? There were no Jews in, in, uh, in South America. There were no Jews in North America. The Jews of the world were in Judea, and 3 million of them were massacred by the Romans. Um, when the Christian armies of Spain and Portugal decided to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslims, that was in the period from about 1200 to about 1500, um, 7 million people died. Um, how about the Mongols? How many Europeans did the Mongols killed in their various invasions of uh, Eastern Europe? So again, round about the 14th century, 30 million Europeans. And we're talking about much smaller populations than today. So in other words, the likelihood of being untouched by violence and by horror and by tragedy was very, very low. Everybody was. Think about uh, the Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War was taking place around about the middle of the 15th century while Johann Gutenberg was inventing the printing press. The Hundred Years' War, three million Western Europeans died. Um, the Spanish conquests in South America Colombia, Mexico, right? 16th century, 15 million people died. During the same time, there were Protestant and Catholic wars going on in Europe, and uh, that took the lives of 3 million Frenchmen. At exactly the same time, there were dynastic wars going on in China, 20 million deaths. Um, the Thirty Years' War going on with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Spanish and the Germans, same time was the Thirty Year War. How many? Eight million deaths there. Think about these numbers. To put them into perspective, if if you wanted, if you needed to bury ten million people in a cemetery, you know, packing them in plots shall we say, uh, you know, eight feet by three feet. How much land would be needed to bury 10 million people? And I've been talking about you know, like tens of tens millions dying. I, mean, do you, I, actually, I actually figured this out, um, saving you the arithmetic, but uh, it wasn't hard to figure out. If you want to bury 10 million dead people, it would take about... Oh, 20 square miles. That's like bigger than any cemetery you can imagine. 20 square miles. That's an area of five miles by four miles. Imagine a square, five miles long and four miles wide. That's huge. And now just fill that with bodies and you've buried 10 million bodies. 
I mean, that, these are big numbers, lots and lots and lots of people dying. So, um, so to live in a time like today, where many, many, many Americans and many people in Europe live out their lives without ever encountering life-changing violence. It's, it's a huge blessing. But I think you'll agree that the numbers are diminishing. In other words, it's getting worse. More and more people are now witnessing or experiencing or seeing and, and even witnessing. You, I mean, you know how upsetting it is for a civilized human being to witness brutal violence right in front of their eyes. It's life-changing. And more and more people in Western civilization are experiencing that because Western civilization is, sadly, in decline. And you'll remember that World War I was touted as the war to end all wars. And after World War I, we got the League of Nations and no more wars are going to happen. Well, it was barely 20 years before uh, we got to September the 1st, 1939, and World War II began. So I don't think anybody today believes that mankind is moving towards a state of civilized tranquility. Uh, Francis Fukuyama was a historian sociologist who um, who wrote a book called The End of History. And there was, there was a period where this was a popular idea uh, that somehow we're moving towards the perfection of mankind and uh, we're, re we're coming to a time where fewer and fewer people are going to die at uh, the hands of brutality and violence. Anyway, I don't think anybody believes that anymore. Uh, people would like to. And it's true that uh, when you are living in a relatively peaceful and prosperous Western civilization country, um, it's, it's hard to realize that daily brutality and violence is, is really more the rule than the exception. Um, I can't help thinking of October the 7th, 2023. There in the south of Israel, peace-loving citizens, people who'd gone out of their way to welcome uh, Arabs from Gaza to come and work and become part of their communities. There were people, some of the people who died, used to drive Gazans to Israeli hospitals if they needed medical treatment. I mean, these people really believed they were bringing in a new era of peace. And uh, they were hurled into the shocking realization that Brutality and violence are normal. They're not ideal. They're not desirable. But they are normal. And all of this I'm trying to show you that for a woman to say she doesn't need a man is, I mean, it, it, it's uh, incredibly short-sighted and uneducated and ignorant because, um, well, let's just say the kibbutz members and their wives and their children, on October the 7th, they didn't even have time to understand that the only way they would survive that terrible day would be by killing every single one of the 3,000 invaders. But, you know, 
they didn't do it and they paid with their lives. But gosh, how about um, some of the women who survived the uh, music festival? They were with guys who dragged them off and in some cases laid down on top of them, covered them with their bodies and the guys got killed and the bullets were, were prevented from killing the girls. Yeah, sorry, ladies, but women do need men. And if in this brief shining moment of history, you can get away for a period of thinking that between your job and the um, security firm patrolling your neighborhood, you actually don't need men, lots of luck with that. It's a, it's a temporary idea, it's a temporary dream, and simply not part of reality. Yes, a woman does need a man, and a man does need a woman. And the partnership they form that we think of as a family is by far and away the best arrangement for a child to grow up in. So much so that there has been talk of labeling the family as a unearned privilege. I have actually seen apologies on the part of people saying, well, uh, you know, I have to apologize for my privilege. Excuse me? What privilege? Well, you know, I grew up in an intact, loving family with a mother and a father who cared for me and helped put me on the road. Yes, that's normal. That's not a privilege. Well, I suppose it is a, certainly a blessing, but uh, it's, it's, it's something that makes a huge difference in somebody's life. As I said, neither girls nor boys do well growing up with a single mom. It just doesn't happen that way. Girls and boys need a father and a mother. And mothers need a husband and fathers need a wife. This is so basic and so real. But you see, that does conflict with other ideas, such as sexism. We must fight sexism. We must fight the patriarchy. Excuse me? Again, I'm not even going to begin to puzzle of what the patriarchy could possibly mean. I mean, incredible. What, what does it mean? But assuming that uh, there are various uh, interpretations that can be placed upon it, it hatred of the patriarchy for many people would disqualify a normal family because the truth is, as I said earlier, both women and men would rather the man be the dominant partner in the marriage. Again, I feel the necessity to issue the caveat that this is provided the man is a real man. He's a nobleman. He's not a scoundrel. He's a knight, not a knave. He is a gentleman. Um, if he's not, all bets are off. Obviously, everything changes. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, um, no wise woman will willingly and knowingly marry a scoundrel, a cad, and a knave. 
But in a, uh, a situation of good men and good women, yeah, absolutely. They would both, they both do better when the dominant partner is the man. And um, if you want a proof of that, well, one of the proofs is something that I describe in uh, our book, The Holistic You, which is that it is true that on average men are taller than women. It is true that the mean height for men is about 5'9 in the United States of America. For women, it's about 5'4, about a five-inch difference. But everybody knows that there are six-foot-tall women, and everybody knows that there are five-foot-four short guys. They are. But if we were to take all the stats, and, and you know that we know a great deal about height because every single time you go to the doctor, you get your height measured and gets recorded. And so for uh, people wanting to do statistical research, it's very easy to find out how tall people are in America. So if we took 300 million Americans and uh, matched them up into 150 million couples, just using complete randomness, because women on average are shorter than men, what percentage of couples would have the man taller than the woman? You'd think a majority, and you'd be right, about 67%. About 67% of random formed couples would have the man taller than the woman. However, using your eyes as you move around society and you look at people, what do you think is the real number? What is the real number? In other words, what do you think the real proportion is of couples in which the man is taller than the woman? And the answer is just about 90%. So therefore, since randomness would produce less than 70%, but reality is about 90%, there are only three possibilities. And that is women prefer taller men, Tall, men prefer shorter women, or both. Those are the only possibilities. There is nothing else to say about it. Yes, both men and women prefer the man to be taller than the woman. Than the woman. That says something. Remember I've spoken in the past in previous shows about how uh, spiritual realities are revealed by physical realities, that uh, the good Lord created us in accordance with a spiritual format, and so our physical reality matches our spiritual reality. There it is. I've just said it. Women prefer to be with a man that they can look up to. Now, I will tell you that uh, I know plenty couples where the woman is either the same height as the man or slightly taller. But in every case I know, every case I can think of, the man is dominant by personality, by attribute, by courage, by strength, by determination, by financial wealth. Yeah, that's fine. It doesn't have to be looked up to physically. That's one thing. But it's also looking up spiritually. Right? And that is, I mean, it's it's a reality in in the most conventional and ordinary form of physical intimacy, the woman looks up at the man. 
Again, that's just a reality of how the world really works. So back to the idea that any doctrine that conflicts with reality is um, false. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It's wrong, simply. And so we've got to be careful not to buy into these ideas. Well, these days, this or that, or we're living in modern times, and they will this or that. No, there's certain things that are built in to human beings, right? They're not going to change. Now, you can distort yourself. You can. You can harm yourself physically. You can harm yourself spiritually. There's no question about it. But uh, you do not end up living successfully when that happens. There was a child raising doctrine a few years ago, and I still run into people today who believe in it, uh, which is that it's not good to say no to children. For very, you know, they came up with various explanations and logical trains that explain. It's not good to say no to a child. A child shouldn't be suppressed or repressed, you should always try and let a child do whatever the child wants to do. Okay, well, what happens then is that you raise a child with no self-discipline and no impulse control. One of the great gifts that parents give their children very early on is the power of self-control, impulse control. Well, if, if there's one thing that can be identified as perhaps the most one of the most important attributes in terms of success in life, it's impulse control, meaning you don't act on your impulse, the first thing you feel like doing. Um, impulse control means you don't punch somebody or slap somebody or hit somebody if they irritate you. That takes impulse control. Not everybody has it. If you were raised by loving parents who really cared about you, they said no to you enough times so as you were able to develop the internal system of self-regulation and impulse control. But the doctrine of choosing to raise children according to this doctrine of never say no to a child, it's a false doctrine because it conflicts with reality. It doesn't conform with reality. And so reality remains a, a wonderful bedrock barometer of truth because, well, reality just doesn't really lie. And that's why I always like reminding you that my job is revealing how the world really works. And one of the ways the world really works is that what you need in your life I don't care, whatever the circumstances. And it may, be, it may be hard, given your circumstances, to actually have this, but you still should know that what you need are your five Fs. You need not only to have your five Fs, you need to feel growth and progress in your five Fs. You need to know that you are improving in your family life, you're improving in your financial life, you're improving in your social life with your friendships. You're improving physically. You're taking better care of yourself. And you are also improving in your faith and spiritual life. So until next week, my dear happy warriors, thinking of you always and looking forward to getting to know more and more of you 
as you go to rabbidaniellappin.com and you become a happy warrior. Until next week, I am your rabbi. God bless.